ಸ್ವರೂಪಿಣೆ ಅವತಾರವರಿಷ್ಠಾಯಕೃಷ್ಣಾ ನಮಃ ವಸುದೇವಸುತಾನೂರಮರ್ದನ So in the last class, we were studying this 22nd and 23rd sloka of the second chapter of Srimad Bhagavad Gita, where we find that the idea that a self is beyond all perception. If anyone asks that if there is self what is the proof can you show it just the way i can show i can point out a flower a book a chair a table so well the subject can never be objectified the moment you objectify it it becomes an object and it will lead to infinite regression you will just go on have to think of some someone is there who is observing so the ultimate subject can never be objectified so that's the idea which we find in vedanta stressed again and again the self is the foundation of the entire creation it is the fundamental principle just the way even in physical science when we say uh that something is fundamental what it means the thing based on which the other things can be defined but you cannot define it as such as it is fundamental based on that i can define the other physical quantities the ultimate fundamental unit entity in the entire existence is the self and that being without parts just the way any physical entities do have parts they are material and they are localized at certain time at certain place we find all the things we starting from the galaxies stars planets to a small creature crawling on the earth it's all can be specified to be located in particular time in particular space self is non local as in the last class we were giving the example to understand that what's the idea of non locality is just the way the transmission for all our television transmission is going on the way the internet is working so all those informations are non local and can we in any way annihilate them destroy them the way we think of destroying 
any material object? It cannot be. The self being non-local, being immaterial, being without parts, in no way can be destroyed. It is eternal. It was, it is, it will be. So let us quickly go through the slokas, which indicates those ideas. There is not much to discuss on it before we proceed to the next section of the Bhagavad Gita. This 23rd sloka, Nainang Chindanti Shastrani, Nainang Dahati Pavaka, Nachainang Kledayantyapu, Nashoshayati Marutaha. Weapons cannot cut it, Nainang Chindanti Shastrani, Nainang Dahati Pavaka. The fire cannot burn it. Nachainang Kledayan, Kledayanti Apa, Apa is water. The water cannot wet it, drench it. Nashoshayati Marutaha. The wind cannot dry it, suck it. Register the way the vacuum cleaner sucks everything. The wind as if sucks everything, dries up everything. Shoshayati means to suck. The wind generally sucks. So it, that, that's how it, the things gets dried. So it cannot dry it. And for this, the same reason, what happens? It, the self cannot be cut or burned. Achedoyam, the 24th sloka. Adahyoyam, akledya, ashoshya evacha. The self cannot be cut or burned or drenched or dried. Nitya sarvagata sthanu achaloyam sanatanaha. So it is something nitya, eternal, sarvagata, all-pervading, sthanuhu, unchanging. Nothing can change it. And achaloyam, immovable. The self is the same forever. So that's the idea which has been spoken of in the 24th sloka. So these are not just abstract ideas. Again and again, we should always remember that each and every sloka has to be reflected in such a way that it do have some implication in our life. If the self, which is the real me, is eternal, all-pervading, unchanging, immovable, it speaks that in our life, Whatever, they're like the anvil of the blacksmith. That's the example which they give in the scripture for the sthanu. That however, you may go on hammering over it. There is no change as if for the anvil of the blacksmith. It cannot be deformed. The self is something like that. And if I am that, all the changes in my life is not actually entailing the change in the real me. And that's the implication from this locus. If I am identified with myself, I also am supposed to be like that sthanu, the anvil of the blacksmith. Whatever may go on, I know it for certain with full conviction that nothing can affect me. And that gives us the grit the resilience, the strength. 
It's not the strength of the muscles, it's the strength of the soul on which we have to rely to really go through the course of life with all the challenges, with all the crises which we face in life, we can face them calmly, with full strength, with equipoise, if we are always aware of that nature of the self, which is unchanging, unmovable, at the same time eternal. It's all pervading. So constantly to assert our real existence by being identified with the self. These are the slokas which should be used as the mantra for contemplation. So the slokas are actually mantras. Mantra, the word mantra means mananat trayate iti mantra. When you go on thinking over it, those ideas seeps in it becomes the be-all and end-all of your existence. Just the way when I eat food, the food is assimilated, the nutrients are passing through my arteries, through the entire body, it is nourishing my body. These ideas in the same way should as if transfer, should nourish me, should transform me, should overhaul my personality so that I can also be calm, equipoised, immovable in all situations of life. And that's how this can be used as mantra. Mananat trayate. When you go on cogitating upon it, it trayate, it saves you. It helps to transcend all the so-called dualities of life. So, so these are the ideas that's why it's repeated again and again. As we were mentioning that it's told that Shastreshu na mantranam jamita asti. That there is no fault. There is no, the scripture doesn't suffer any redundancy. It becomes redundant, useless because it is repeating the same thing. No. Many may feel that what's the same idea repeated again and again. It's actually creating a groove in our mind. This constant cogitation of the idea. Otherwise, this idea remains in, in just something superficial. Only it somehow uh, appeals our intellect. In our day-to-day -day life, when we are facing the struggle, they has as if no implication. That's why these things are repeated again and again so that we can continue our spiritual journey by doing nididhyasana. Yes, intellectually I'm con convinced of the fact that I am the self, but that won't do. You have to now meditate on your intellectual conviction. Go on thinking so that your stimuli response conditioning changes, your reflexes changes. In the life of Sri Ramakrishna we found that his reflex changed. The so-called material things which lure us, even in unconsciously, those are the things his body will repel. And seeing that, Swami Vivekananda coined a wonderful definition of education. What is education? 
education is the nervous association of ideas. That the ideas which I am studying, contemplating, it is just not to that what to do with my spare time. So this idea somehow gives me a very uh, exalted feeling. I read. But if after reading, if after dwelling in those thoughts, I find that in my moments of crisis, moments, the challenges, it in no way is helping me. Then all those readings, though is of evil, yes, for the, the time when you were free, you had nothing to do, it helped you to have a quality, a, a good quality of life. But if it doesn't help us in the moment of dangers and crisis, its work is half done. So that's why it has to be repeated again and again, so that it becomes a part and parcel of your life. It becomes a nervous association. Just nervous association means reflex. It, it has entered into your nerves. It has changed your reflex system. Otherwise, education remains just in the words of Ramakrishna. Our education at last makes us like vultures. We fly very high, but all our focus is on some carrion, some rotten flesh down on the man in some pit hole. Some rotten flesh is there from the sky. My focus is there. It has not in any way overhauled my personality, transformed me. So it shouldn't just be a matter of academic knowledge. It has to be totally internalized. It, we should seep in those ideas. So that's the thing which is being indicated. The 25th sloka also almost speaks in the same line of vyaktoyam achintyoyam avikaryoyam uchyate tasmat means unmanifest. Just like all the objects, you cannot say that the self is something which can manifest. It is the cause of manifestation of everything, but it is something which is unmanifest. So that's why it's avyakta, inaccessible to the senses. It's for the senses to perceive anything and it has to be manifested. So by avyakta means it is inaccessible to the senses. Achintya, incomprehensible, by means it's inaccessible to the mind. So by these two words, what is indicated? The Atman is avang manasugocharam. Vak speaks of the senses. Manas speaks of the mind. A is a negation. Gochar means to comprehend by the mind and senses. Vak, mana, gochar. Vak actually speaks of all the senses, the karmendriyas as well as the gyanendriyas. Mana speaks of the mind. Gochara means to comprehend, to perceive. Anything which is not perceived by the senses and the mind becomes a, a is in the sense of negation, vak, manasa, gocharam. So this Atman is avyakta, is achintya. That means it is avang manasagocharam. In our spiritual journey, when I'm thinking of the self, 
Who is thinking? It is a mind. When I say I am the Atman, I am the Brahman, who is saying it? It is a mind. That's why very nicely in Ashtavakra Gita, how nicely it has been mentioned that the self can never be thought of. Why? Achintyam, chintyam anopi, chintya rupam bhajatyasu. Achintyam, chintyam anopi, chinta rupam bhajatyasu. So when you think of the unthinkable, you are actually resorting to a piece of thought only. You can never think of the thing which is unthinkable. You cannot think. So when you are trying to do that, it is just in the name of thinking that you are having some mental image of it. And that's why it's a very important thing. That in the, in the entire world, all the religions, whether they believe in form or formless God, everyone is resorting to image. You have to. It may not be an external image. But as long as we have to think of the self, we have not realized, some way or other, you are forming a mental image. That's Swami Vivekananda used to give an example. That Ananta, that God is without end, all pervasive. The moment you have to think of it, immediately what will we do? We will be imagining the sky, the ocean, and the sky, the ocean, becomes the image, becomes the idol. The self is not the sky. The self is not the ocean. So somehow or other, we have to resort to some sort of imagery. Whether it is a form of an idol or not, I cannot avoid in any way this idol worship in some form or other. Maybe the idol is not there outside. It has to be in your mind. Because it is achintyam. I cannot think of it. It is beyond the thought. Because of that, thought is possible. Avikarya, unchangeable. Being without parts. It cannot change. It is the eternal self. It is always the witness of everything. The witness never changes. When you are dreaming, the experience of dream is contradicted by the experience of the waking state. When you wake up, you know that the dream was false. When you were dreaming, the dream was true. Nothing else existed. So the dream state and the experience of the dream state and the experience of the waking state are contradictory. But then what is true? What is the truth? The truth is the experiencer. The one who was dreaming, he knows it is me only. Who was dreaming? He woke up and I feel, now I feel what I was dreaming was not true. But can you deny the one who was dreaming is a different person than the one who has woke up? No. So the experiencer is the same. That is the idea of avikarya, avikari. There is no change in the experiencer. And that experiencer, when you try to point out, it is achintya, avyakta. It is there, but you can never point out. Because as we were saying, the moment you can point out, it becomes an object. So that's the profound thought process defined thousands of years back the rishis have resorted to, which finds 
in a wonderful form of bouquet, bouquet in Bhagavad Gita. Swami Vivekananda used to give a wonderful example when he was uh, eulogizing the Bhagavad Gita. What he was, he, what he told is very interesting. That throughout the Vedas, throughout the Upanishads, it's like forest. You have entered into the forest and suddenly you come across, you suddenly see a wonderful flower, beautiful flower. And then you again start walking it's all, along all the bush. And after a long, long distance, again you see some beautiful flower or some beautiful scenery or some fruit, whatever it may be. So Gita has collected all those in the form of a bouquet. And all those ideas you find in one place, which made this Bhagavad Gita as the Sruti Prasthana. There are three Prasthanas, Sruti, Sruti, and the Nyaya. The Upanishads are the Smriti, uh, Sruti Prasthana. The Upanishads are the Sruti, which were in those days in the Vedic ages when the Script was not described and was not discovered, but the ideas, these profound ideas were revealed to the sages, to the pure mind of the sages. And to keep the tradition going, they used to verbally transmit that knowledge. So you have to learn that through hearing. That's why they are all Shrutis. And then much later, the Smritis, Smriti Shastra came. There's all those profound ideas when finds expression through the great lives. To remember those lives, you write the life stories, the epics, the itihasas, full of the stories of the saints and seers. He may not be just a renunciate. He may be the king, Rajarshi. But his life was an exemplification of all these truths which has been spoken of in the Vedanta. So these exemplifications has been nicely documented in the Smriti Shastra. So Bhagavad Gita being a part of Mahabharata where the life of Krishna is being exemplified that how the one who is speaking, one who is transmitting this knowledge of Bhagavad Gita is himself an example of that type of life. He's the best commentary of Bhagavad Gita is the life of Sri Krishna. So it is finding expression through that. So that's the thing which we will find is again and again being related through all these this slokas. The life exemplified in the life of Krishna is being, being transmitted to Arjuna. So avikarya, unchangeable, without parts. So it can, it is always the eternal witness. So we find this, these ideas that as we told, that it is exemplified through the lies, the Smriti Shastra, like the Bhagavad Gita. And it even follows still even the recent days. And this idea of this avikari is wonderfully exemplified in the life of Sri Ramana Maharshi. It's a very wonderful life, highly inspiring. He has a boy of 16 or 17, that's the time. So suddenly one day felt that he felt that I am going to die. No one was at home, he was alone. All others went out for some to attend some festival. He was alone and suddenly the thought of death came and he thought, I'm going to die. He became frightened. He came home, 
lay down in his room on the floor and he just was repeating in his mind mentally repeating what i am dying i am dying i am going to die i am going to die and imitated the whole experience of death so it's very interesting thing the life of raman maharshi this experience this singular experience shows uh, demonstrates a wonderful fact that no one of us can imagine death can you imagine your own death so say yes i can imagine what will you be imagining that your body is lying your relatives are repenting over the dead body it's most probably taken in for the funeral who is visualizing all this thing who is visualizing the experiencer can you ever think of your death impossible you have to think of your death you have being you being the experiencer i can never think of my death and that's the idea for us it may be just an intellectual idea but for ramana maharshi in a flash it bring brought him that realization it totally overwhelmed him his personality was just immediately transformed and that's the idea on which he spent the entire life these are the beauty of these wonderful lives so that's i am the deathless the one who watched my death is always there that is my true self so that's the thing means we all are studying the scriptures only that we don't know when such flash of realization will come all our intellectual cogitation is for that unless that flash of realization comes we are still in the world of darkness it's all though we may think that we are spiritually evolved it is just intellectual evolution it in no way speaks of spiritual transformation the spiritual transformation comes when it comes it really transforms your life you become jivan mukta as sri ramakrishna used to say that what spiritual realization is like so see he says to give a nice example suppose a cave is dark for millions of years all those you know the uh, uh, this caves are there where now you go for this the tourists are it has become the tourist spot so this is the jenelong caves in new south wales we visited our so huge this uh this limestone you know, these formations are there tourists are going and the guide uh, very nicely the very first sentence he will say is that for millions of years it was dark no light was there and it's just some 150 years back one explorer entered into the cave and focused the torchlight and he was marveled what 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 the all these limestone formations are were forming there in the dark for millions of years for the first time the light fell and okay after that the explorers started venturing more and more and that has now become the tourist spot the idea is that same idea sri ramakrishna is saying that most probably a cave was dark for millions of years someone enters and just strikes a matchstick the next sentence very simple this simple sent words of ramakrishna sometimes becomes very difficult to understand we take the simple words we immediately uh, 
miss the main point. What he's saying, no, you will find that most of us will read it, but we never realize what he's saying. What he's saying that after million years, someone entered, strike the match, immediately the cave was lighted. You will say, what is the extraordinary thing in it? What he's indicating is that it never took another million years. That's add his word dark for million years. We have the idea, oh, we have so much of ignorance. We are a bound soul. So much of sadhana is required to get rid of the layers and layers of ignorance. To deny that fact, that realization comes in a flash. Ramakrishna is giving that example. That millions years of years of ignorance, just in a flash, the moment, just like in the life of Ramana Maharshi, it came that it flashed, all the wells of ignorance fell off once for all, just at that instant. So that speaks of the realization. When it happens, no more doubt, no more uh, Again, groping in this ignorance, all this has vanished. You find your perspective has totally changed. You then feel that so-called the life was a long dream. I think the, the waking state itself is a long dream. Our dream state is a dream within the dream. Our waking state it's itself is a dream. As per the spiritual, our spiritual existence is concerned. If this waking state is a dream, and suddenly you feel you have woke up from the dream. All the things loses its importance. Nothing can affect you. It's just a flow. You are the witness. Knowing very well, no one can affect that witness. And that's the idea of avikarya, which has been spoken of in the 25th sloka. So, so thus, by saying this, why all these slokas? Krishna is trying to convince Arjuna that he should not cherish the idea of the self as the slayer or the slain. On account, and on that account, he should grieve. Now, after so much of discussion on the nature of the self, Krishna, like an adept teacher, he feels that maybe even after so much of explanation, it's very obvious the doubt is there. Even with all this discussion, you meet some a young boy who doesn't believe in soul, he will say all these are bogus. So maybe Arjuna may feel like that. It's all these are bogus, there's no self. Then Krishna, now for the next three slokas, will take the standpoint of the atheist. But even as an atheist, you don't believe in soul. Then also, just to grieve for the one who is dead or your own death has no meaning. So that's what Sri Krishna in the next three slokas will be relating. So assuming for the sake of argument that the self is not eternal or the self doesn't exist, now Sri Krishna will proceed with his deliberation in the next three verses. So what's the 26th verse? Athachainang nitya jatang nityang va manyase mritam tathapitvang mahabaho naivang shochitum arhasi. Atha. However, but if you forget about that, this idea of the self, you don't believe in it. Okay, let's forget. Athachainam nitya jatam. If you feel that the so called Consciousness is an epiphenomenon with a conglomeration of the physical, this all the physical 
conglomerates this consciousness has evolved nitya jatam every time wherever we see the expression of life with the conglomeration of matter is consciousness is evolving the charvakas the atheists they used to give a nice example that when you know in the in india the uh, the bitter leaf when they apply lime on the other ingredients uh, or spices the something which was colorless immediately turns into that brown color uh, in sanskrit the spice is called khair in khair the lime is mixed the color changes and charvakas give the example that example saying that matters conglomerates and just the way the color comes out the consciousness evolves there's the idea of epiphenomenon the consciousness is not a phenomenon it doesn't exist it appears for the time being even now there are so many deliberations lectures you will find in the mainstream science those still try to insist on that idea and krishna is quite happy okay you believe in that okay the consciousness is an evolute it just comes out by the conglomeration of matter nityam va manyase mritam and with the death uh, that every time that you think the self repeatedly comes into being and dies that with again with the when the body disintegrates the disease the death is there if you believe that tathapitvam still o mahabahu o the mighty armed the great warrior the mahabahu who has a huge biceps you can say mahabahu naivam shochitum arhasi you shouldn't grieve the simple reason is that there is nothing to worry for one must one must be there to worry if you are not there the one who is dead if he is not there for him the worry is over who is worrying about the dead the one who are living so that's the idea even now we find prevalent that when you say there is nothing to worry it has some different implication there is nothing who is there there is no one to worry there is nothing to worry at present in in our uh, when we are living we say that there are no such external circumstances which is the reason for my worry and that's why we generally misunderstand when we say there is nothing to worry after death actually the word means there is that you yourself don't exist there is nothing to worry means that so that's the idea which has been spoken of in this sloka tathapitvam mahavaho naivam shochitum arhasi so and then the same idea will be continued extended in the next sloka जातस्य ही ध्रुवो मृत्यु ध्रुवं जन्म मृतस्य च तस्मात् अपरिहार्यार्थे नत्वं शोचितुम अरहसि फॉर टू दैट व्हिच इज बोर्न डेथ इज सर्टेन एंड टू दैट व्हिच इज डेथ बर्थ इज सर्टेन इट्स नॉट दैट ही इज स्पीकिंग ऑफ द सोल दैट इट इज द सेम मैटर व्हिच कॉन्ग्लोमरेटेड to create this self as an epiphenomenon as a atheist thing those matter may disintegrate and again integrate in a different way to create another life so that such nothing is continuing so even for even that's the case 
तस्मात अपरिहार्य थे अपरिहार्य थे अपरिहार्य अर्थ थे अपरिहार्य मीन्स दैट विच इज इन एविटेबल अर्थ थे नोइंग वेरी वेल दैट दैट डेथ इज इन एविटेबल वाई सुड यू वरी इफ समथिंग इज इन एविटेबल वॉट्स द यूज इन वॉरिंग अबाउट इट if there is a 50 50 chance that is something may happen something may not happen that okay i am trying to get a promotion in my job it may happen it may not happen then there is a question of worry in with all the unpredictabilities things speaks of worry if anything is predictable then what's the use of worry it doesn't makes any sense just think in a very common sensical way that if something is evitable then what is the use of worrying so that's the idea is saying that if death is something inevitable then why should you worry about it as we find that swami vivekananda is mentioning in one of his lectures the only thing it's a very common thing even it doesn't need to quote swami ji we also know it that the only thing which is certain in this life of uncertainties this life is full of uncertainties but if anything is certain and that is death today or tomorrow or day after tomorrow or maybe years after i don't know when but it is there waiting for me so we find that this is the idea that this is the most uh, thing which is going to happen which we throughout our life try to deny that we find in the mahabharata in another story the story of yudhishthira when he went uh, to that pond where his brothers all the younger brothers have went to fetch water and as the yakshas question they didn't bother to answer they all met the same fate they all died the condition was that if you have to fetch water first you have to answer my question the yaksha in the form of a crane was just uh, in the shore of the water whenever the other pandavas came to fetch water the crane spoke out wet before taking water first you have to answer the questions my questions first you have to answer my questions and then only you can fetch water so they ignored and he warned them that if you try to fetch water without answering my questions you will die and that's what happened yudhishthira finding that none of them have returned who went his brothers went to fetch water another returned now at last he went and he also had to face the same encounter the same yaksha in the form of the crane now yudhishthira he complied that okay whatever question you have to ask i will try my best to answer so there are a number of questions and one of the question was that what is the most uh, surprising thing in this world ashcharya and yudhishthira's reply was that that every moment we find that death is there inevitable death is there there is something visible but we are somehow we are living the life in such a way that we are not as if bothered about the death swami vivekananda has his own way of saying it that the thing which is inevitable we always try to 
what is what he said? Ignore it. How? He has to give the example of a rabbit. The rabbit is when it is chased by a predator. At last, when it finds that it cannot run away, it cannot escape, what it does, it will try to burrow a hole, dig a hole in the soil, and it somehow manages to hide its face inside the hole. And the moment it hides its face, it cannot see the predator, and now it is at peace. Oh, I have most probably hidden myself well, not knowing that he is visible to the predator. At no moment the predator will come and get hold of the rabbit. So that's the example Swami used to say that through all our social engagements, we keep ourselves busy socializing, something, this, doing this, doing that. What we are trying to do, if you just forget uh, that in all sorts of your social engagement, just it happened for, uh, for all of us during the COVID. And if you really try to find out that how lonely, that how insecure we feel when we are alone. And that insecurity inevitably comes in the form of the thought of death. And to get rid of that sense of insecurity, we try to immediately go and just be with someone. It's just like the rabbit trying to burrow a hole and hide its face. But the predator is there. It's always there waiting for us. It is, I can try to hide myself, but it is always seeing me. It is always something which is inevitable. If it is the fact of life, what's the use? It doesn't speak that you say you're intelligent. What type of intelligence it is? When death is something inevitable, what's the use in trying to run away from it? As in the Mahabharata, some other stories there. That throughout our life, we are playing a game of chess with whom the opponent is Mahakala. Time is the opponent. And we all know who is going to win the game. We all know. With all our yogas, with all our diet, with all our awareness, awareness of health, those are just, we are just playing the game. Those are the moves we are having. This is our yoga, our diet our health awareness, all those things are the moves by which I am playing against the one who is my opponent, the Mahakala. And we know very well who is going to win. But still we go on playing. And Mahabharata, this idea is very nice. They say, why we go on playing? Just we know that who is going to win. Just to play a few more extra moves, nothing else. That's to pay a few more extra moves. So that's why when Swami Vivekananda was delivering a lecture, just he was addressing the newly ordained monks of the Ramakrishna order in his days. They were the first batch of monks. And his address to them was, he asked them, do you know what is sannyasa? So there are so many wonderful definitions of sannyasa, renounce, Renunciation and all. He never spoke on those lines. Simply a simple short phrase he told. Love death. Sannyasa means only loves. Means then the next thing to clarify he says, will he be committing suicide? No. Love death means not suicide. 
the same thing when you know that life is going to be over why are you so much bothered with your own life so careworn about it if it has to go why not spend it for some noble purpose just see how wonderful is interpreting it has to go why not use it for some noble purpose for the collective good so that is the love of death that we the death which is inevitable that it can really that uh, in, without thinking of any spiritual identity that i i continue to exist even after death even without that idea we can be moral we can be uh, altruistic we can be compassionate that if life is not going to be there why to bother about myself so much there is so much suffering in the world why not i reach out yes life is very short even for this short moment if i can make that people happy that makes me feel happy why i am so much bothered about myself so it gives a wonderful ethics that atheism doesn't mean that it is uh, bereft of ethics even from that the way you can uh, take that uh, think over your atheism yes life is not there now with this fact how i just have orient my paradigm orient my viewpoint on that ethics can be built up there can be wonderful ethics and that's what bhagwan is saying that if death is inevitable why are you so much worried about it be an instrument in the hand of divine and just think of the collective goodness and do what you're supposed to do so jatasya hi dhruva mrityo dhruvam janma mritasya cha tasmat aparihariya arthe natvam shochitu arasi and the 28th shloka will be a conclusion of this idea that even if the self is not there you shouldn't worry avyakta dini bhutani vyakta madhyani bharata avyakta nidhananyeva tatraka paridevana avyakta adini bhutani this all the things which are seeing all the living beings crawling in this earth moving around in this world they were avyakta before their birth unmanifest avyakta adini bhutani all the adi means etc all this bhutas which you are seeing they were all unmanifest vyakta madhyani just for some time they are vyakta they become manifest avyakta nidhana anyeva even after death again they become unmanifest why to worry about it tatraka paridevana why give so much weightage to this transitory existence forget about it think that's why swami vivekananda in one sentence is there that so many lives you have wasted giving so much importance to this little self at last you find no happiness you thought you were rich and then the death came to make you realize you are a pauper nothing you can take just have to die we all die like a pauper with all the wealth we amass and life after life we were deluded we were because of our short sightedness our myopic vision then he's saying how many lives you have wasted in this way why not just spend a life thinking of this high sublime spiritual truth sometimes we think 
just to live a life with the spiritual truth. They are all impractical person of no use. They have no practical implication. They have no business faculty. Swamiji is saying, like a fool, that's just like the majority, the way they think, have in any way they have gained anything, nothing. Their life was at last wasted. So why not waste a life with the idea, all the spiritual ideals? You have already wasted. You're not going to miss anything. Maybe actually this idea is also useless. We'll be wasting another more life. What's the harm? Already you have wasted so many lives. Be ready to waste another life. Have that courage. Let me experiment. And you may find that it can be something which is showing you a new way. That's the biggest paradox that we all want happiness in life. We are chasing after happiness. And like the ships, we just follow the ship which is our which is ahead of us. Whatever it does, if it falls in a hole, we also all fall in a hole. We, uh, we just fall in a what is the shallow uh, some uh, this pond or somewhere the first one falls, everyone falls. That's the way of the ship, and that's what we are doing. And Swamiji is indicating that what's that this is the biggest ignorance because Maya that we all want happiness and we are all following the course which cannot give us happiness. And there may be someone who without any intention that may go towards the other path and suddenly find happiness. To give just what he says, to give an example, we found that forget about self, that self is not, that death is inevitable. But can you explain this fact that if we saw repeatedly every year that whenever there is a public celebration of Sri Ramakrishna or any other public celebrations we have in our centers in India, which entailed a huge gathering and prasada was distributed to all. So we needed a quite a band of volunteers to really serve the food to all. So we do had volunteers, but we thought as this is an education institution, we have so many students. Why not instill this value of service into them. So we used to insist, we will have a duty list in which the students were insisted that for one hour or for two hours, it's you, the students who have to serve. And we always used to find when they see the list and their name, it's not the all students name will be there. If we used to find, we used to just try to find out who is a bit strong, healthy, is not sickly, we used to put those names so that they can endure that hardship. And they are the one who will be grumbling. Oh, at last it is me who have become the scapegoat. And that's the way they were grumbling. But we were very strict about it. No, it's the thing which you have to do. And every year the same thing, invariably we found the same thing. Once they start serving, their duty was just for one hour. It was, it was, they were not needed. We had sufficient volunteers just to instill that the spirit of service. We kept a slot of one hour for them. Now, when they started, when they start doing it, now when it's the time for the other volunteers to come and take over, they're not willing to go. They want to continue. And not only that, they may have the extremely, as they are not habituated, the next day they will have extremely body pain. 
but invariably of, of that invariably even of that fact at that moment we find they never feel the stress they continue why they got the joy out of it that the thing which you thought is never going to give you joy gives you joy gives you happiness because we are they say nowadays they are saying that our genes are altruistic whether self is there or not let us forget but we cannot deny the fact that in giving others a type of joy we experience in this life know it for certain if we have ever experienced joy it is from giving we suffer when we cannot give you go to the any poor person you ask what's the cause of suffering he will in 99.99% cases you will find he never says because i cannot eat i am starving very few they will say i cannot feed my child i cannot feed my i was in welfare section in belurmat where we used to give this pecuniary helps to the so called extremely poor person and we used to ask that why you need this money just a small money he came for he will come for every morning and of course the department was meant for that if you really find someone is in real dire need okay the small pecuniary help for the time being will of course help him just give him and then we can think of uh, uh, developing some skills among them so that they can get some type of work to sustain themselves that comes later first give some help and we used to ask why you need and we were asked to observe that remarks a wonderful thing in 99.99% cases no one says it is for me it's for my child for my grandchild for my wife for my husband it is for someone else that they are suffering they're not bothered that they themselves are hungry they're bothered because some one else is hungry and he cannot do anything know it for certain there is a joy in giving all the misery comes when you cannot give all the misery all the suffering entails when you cannot give and when we know this fact forget about religion forget about the soul if this is the fact which i cannot deny why not just thinking of that live a life knowing that knowing very well that death is inevitable let me also enjoy while give trying to give joy to others through relating for some higher purpose for the collective welfare so that's the idea which will be reiterated even through these slokas where he's speaking not of the self he's speaking only of the fact that death is inevitable then also we can still live a life which can give us a sense of fulfillment so that's the idea which we find has been related in these three slokas now after that that why we doubt the existence of self because it is so subtle that's the idea which will be spoken of in the next sloka the 29th sloka which we will resort to the study of that again in the next bhagavad gita class so thank you all namaskaras